Hi and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode six. six blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm I'm doing. I've done too many of these damn podcasts, and I should know, shouldn't I? So anyway, it's episode seventy nine, and today um, I have Dr. James Betts with me from Bath University. How are you doing, James? Very well, thank you. So the reason why I was blubbering there, I think, is because we were talking about biopsies and various other things. Um, but I can assure the listeners that we're not. Uh, neither you um, are conducting biopsies, and nor am I on the leg of lamb that I was just discussing. Um, so, James, just for folks that don't know who you are and um, not sure what you're up to, could you just give us some background about um, yourself and, and your work, please? So, I got into exercise science, as, as many people did, up at Loughborough University and uh, completed my PhD under the supervision of Professor Clyde Williams and then actually moved straight there to where I am now and where I have been for the last 10 years working at the University of Bath in our Department for Health and conducting um, research into nutrition and metabolism. Specifically, I've done a lot of work in my past into recovery from exercise and the interactions between carbohydrate and protein ingestion and metabolism and most recently a focus on energy balance and how we can look at compensatory um, responses to feeding and, and exercise or physical activity to improve health. That's great. And um, I had your colleague, um, Dr. Javier Gonzalez, on um, the podcast uh, on episode 71 for folks that want to um, check on that. It's an excellent um, episode, I felt, where we talked about some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, for example, the role that breakfast uh, can have with things like body composition and um, and energy balance and so on. And and for those that have been listening to this podcast for the last couple of years, um, I did delve into topics such as calories and energy balance. And um, throughout the sort of the journey, so to speak, of all the people that I've interviewed and my own learnings, I've come to evolve some of my thoughts and ideas. But you know, the the reason why I feel that this topic is very interesting is because it is one that people are constantly arguing about. And um, whether it's social media, whether it's uh, online forums, whether it's in published journals, whether it's in the classroom, there are, I would imagine on a daily basis, multiple times per day on all four corners of this world, um, people are talking about, you know, calories in, calories out, energy balance and so on. And one of the things that I have come to realize is is people don't often or, or far too infrequently define what they mean by these terms. So there's a lot of mess. Um, there's a lot of noise that goes on. There's a lot of misinformation, but there's also people arguing different different perspectives on on a certain you know concept where there's that familiar term of calorie or energy balance but actually they are they're in reality are arguing different points because they haven't defined what they're talking about so um because i wanted to talk to you about energy balance and as you just mentioned there compensatory mechanisms and that sort of thing um i, I felt I, I feel though that we should be defining what we're talking about first so that everyone's on the same page so perhaps you you could firstly um just tell us why you got into this whole area of work and then what we'll do is we'll define what we mean by energy balance. Yeah, so along with that, I think uh, I'm thrilled to hear you say that because 
um, I think I must bore people sometimes with any question I'm asked on this topic. I seem to have to start by saying, can we just back up and define our terms? Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you that so much of the um, discussion and often conflicting views in this field come from the fact you can see two people mean a different thing by a term they're using. Um, so I think um, that um, equivocal data, or even if the data aren't equivocal, um, the opinions that don't agree is something that appealed to me. I quite like about nutrition in general that it's a field where um, there's a lot of different opinions, a lot of myths, and a lot of what you can tell the public that actually really grabs their interest is not what we do know, but letting them know what is still unknown, but that public opinion seems to think was something that was a open and shut case years ago. So certainly a lot of that kind of mythology and rumor that goes around in, in nutrition is something that appealed to me right from the start and in my time since a student to now really tracks the time that the internet has proliferated which while it's a wonderful tool it's actually not helped at all with the ability for people who are not experts to um, put out their opinions which are not correct so it's it's more important than ever that everybody's um, got an evidence-based opinion and we know where to go for evidence-based sources. Absolutely. So that's that's yeah. what appealed to me. And um, I quite like, whether it's about nutrition or science in general, and, and I, I definitely like to think of myself and try and practice as a, as a scientist first and name my area of science second, is I like to just base my opinions on data and logic. And I think if everybody was doing that, we'd have far fewer discussions because we'd all agree about what we don't know yeah i i mean that basically is what has absorbed me over this past few years i um i don't know what you do and don't know about me but i you know i've been around quite a long time i started my life as a pt and for many years i sort of evolved in what i now reflect on as the wild west <laughs> of my career and uh, got into all sorts of stuff alternative medicine all sorts of things but at no point did i have the tools to question the validity or the quality of the sources of information I had, and I got very, uh, very into stuff, and I got, I got, got into it, um, it, you know, with a great deal of passion, and and on the limited education and with the limited tools I had to appraise that quality of information, you know, I I I, I felt very strongly and passionately um, about certain things that I now look back on with sort of embarrassment and disdain but I, I always like to mention to people you know you've got to be careful when you start trying to rip someone apart especially on social media and trolling and all that stuff where people are having a go at people for talking about stuff um, like we said they haven't defined what they're talking about that sort of thing but also they may not realize that what they're saying is rubbish in fact most of the time they don't realize that because they haven't had that that education from quality sources um, to have that ability to differentiate the the quality science from the flawed science, and um, you know, I, I think for me, social media or the internet and so on has been a double-edged sword because yes, it it drives you nuts because there's lots of crazy people, um, but on the other hand, it leads us to people like yourself and others. I, I you know, I, I I know that there's a lot of scientists who don't participate in social media for reasons I can understand. It's it's distracting and so on, but there's a lot of trolling and a lot of people who don't actually do science who like to criticize 
scientists for their work, which I always find interesting. Um, but ultimately, and this is one of the reasons for this podcast, is dissemination of quality information is, is a problem. And um, a lot of really esteemed scientists are publishing amazing publications like Nature or JAP or whatever. Um, but so few people are actually reading that. And, and so few people are able to, to understand how to interpret that paper um always a big problem which is why i like this this podcast where sort of the degree of peer review that i can get into with this is i'm making sure i'm talking to people who themselves have the right education and have published into peer-reviewed literature and we're talking about topics that they've published on and that sort of thing um but um going back to what you said and um as a comment on what i said this idea of definitions i i think I think it's a big problem is, is people don't define, but also in, in science, James, they don't do they often. When you read people's papers, there, there aren't enough definitions made. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, and often also in nutrition science, there's terms which have kind of been stolen, stolen away and have lost. I think uh, maybe it was Ben Goldacre who was talking about how the 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 title nutritionist has been stolen and we need to drop it because there's there's so many people not qualified have taken it that those who are qualified should maybe accept they've lost the term to to the quacks mm. but yeah even even in the specific terms in the field there's certain usages of terms which have been taken away and now actually to the majority of people don't mean what they do to scientists and there's a point where scientists should maybe stop trying to educate what the term really means and accept that that term has now been lost to the culture and uh, just define it differently or to describe it differently ourselves. And I agree with you on your wider point too, that um, obviously as somebody who works at a university, um, I think education is of prime importance. So I engage quite heavily with, with social media. And if I see somebody who's um, propagating misinformation, my first instinct is to to think the best and try and enlighten the situation or at least involve myself in the discussion to see if, if maybe I can learn anything from it. The, the times when I think people do more go for the jugular more rightly and justified is if you can see that education wasn't the problem. I think more and more there's a lot of people who are, um, they understand the correct information and what we don't know, but will put out messages um, anyway for their own personal gains. And, and that's that's the time when I, I do tend to get a bit more cross if it's somebody who should know better and actually does know better, mm. but it's in their interest to um, claim certain facts as scientific facts, which clearly are not. Yeah, and I, I I agree with you, and I I think a lot of people will resonate with that one way or the other, or have even committed those offences at some point. I know I certainly did years ago. I was constantly talking about stuff that I really didn't know what I was talking about, but of course one learns, but. Um, I, I am actually interested in 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 the concept of an expert um, as it relates to how people interpret what that term means. Um, for me, as a practitioner, expertise isn't just about having advanced knowledge in the evidence um, mechanisms, uh, knowledge, science, but it's also the ability to you know um um demonstrate mastery 
in the usage of that knowledge as a tool and applying it into a certain setting. And that setting itself has its own environmental factors, social factors, um, whether it's within a lab, within a team setting. Um, there are other people that are involved in your expertise. You're, you're invariably not an expert yourself. There are, there, are, there are aspects that go with that term expert. Um, so in what context are you an expert? You know, an expert, I was just talking to my colleague Scott, you know, about um, this morning about, you know, one could be an expert in a certain topic, say energy balance. You could find yourself in a conference in Japan where nobody speaks English. Um, are you still an expert if no one can understand what you're saying? Um, if you're a surgeon, um, you're an expert in your operating theatre with your team, with your tools, but are you, are you the same expert in someone else's operating theatre with a different team, different tools? I mean, you're still the same person, so that expertise becomes an interesting concept, doesn't it? And... Um, and that's what I find interesting about this is when we're talking about science um, and information, the context is constantly lost, um, which is my main mission with this podcast is to always talk about context, um, which brings us back to energy balance, uh, of course, which is if, there are, if, if there's one or two topics out there that is hotly debated on social media for example since we talked about it this has to be one of them and you're always seeing terms like calories in calories out it's simple eat more move more um on morning television or you know those sorts of things so maybe to bring it this podcast back to the purpose perhaps james you could give us a definition of what we actually mean by energy balance first so very very simply it is the the calories coming in or let's let's say energy coming in so that we don't open up another can of worms of definitions but the energy that's coming into the body and the energy that's going out of the body so uh, energy intake and expenditure and the balance between those two things which have a whole load of implications primarily I think a lot of the discussion goes into obesity or at least the effect that that's going to have on body mass or body fat accumulation or um, reductions in that for, for many people who are trying to lose weight. So that's really what, what we're talking about in terms of energy balance, not from a physics perspective and energy in a, a system of a, mach a machine, a mechanical object like that, or an engine, but to look at the body as a, an engine, it's for a human being, the number of calories or amount of energy coming in versus the num number of calories or energy that's, that's being lost from the system. And that, that's a key point, though, that you've made that we should unravel is energy balance, depending on whether you're talking to a sort of a, you know, an engineer, a biomathematician, a biochemist or whatever, what we're talking about is energy balance in terms of a biological system. Um, and of course, there are environmental factors, both sort of internal environmental factors and external environmental factors that complicate this. Perhaps you could give us an idea of, of what some of those factors would even be. So, as you said, there's a lot of complicating factors involved. So there are aspects of this issue where we, we end up saying, well, that's, that's difficult to make a, a certain statement on it. But at the core of energy balance, we have a fairly simplistic model. And we can talk about how if somebody's in a positive um, calorie surplus 
then they should be gaining mass or gaining fat in the case of most adults. And if they're in a calorie deficit, they'll be losing mass. And we can often refer back to physics of the system, and that part is, is quite neat and simple for us to make those kind of statements. Uh, and to hark back to one of the debates you see online about, is a calorie a calorie? And I think when people say it isn't, they're talking about some of the biological processes which can complicate issues. Ultimately, though, a calorie is a calorie. It's a unit of measurement. A gram is a gram, a second is a second, and a calorie is a calorie. And if it wasn't, we'd be stuck in this um, approach to energy balance because energy balance relies on our ability to stack up the two sides of the equation and subtract one from the other and express it as a balance or a differential. Um, so if a calorie wasn't a calorie, we'd have 2,000 calories on one side, 2,000 on the other side, and still be able to say the person wasn't in balance. And that's not the case. And it's then when we get down to the biology that we start to recognize that there are, there are of course, complicating uh, factors. So what I like to start with is actually to break energy balance down into its components. And, um, and then you can consider which of those have a greater environmental influence on them and which are merely dictated by your biology. Yeah, and I, I you know, I, when I'm trying to talk to my students about this or other people, um, I sometimes like to use a sort of real-world analogies and you know I think some for some people they would you know think of money or the exchange of currency as a similar concept there are you know money goes in and out of your bank account but um, if you consider that flow of m money from different countries i.e. different regions and parts of the body different foods i.e. literally different currencies you know whether it's dollars pounds or whatever they all have a slightly different um, relationship in terms of of the exchange rates and that sort of thing. And there's a there's a cost to have a bank account. There's a cost to change money. Um, so whilst at the most basic level, yes, um, you know the the calories are calories. As I keep mentioning on this podcast, is we don't eat calories. We eat food, of course. Um, but we have to be able to talk about units like calories it's just as we have mentioned multiple times here is people because they don't define what they mean by things that this is where it all gets a bit messy um, but also um, a lot of people put too much emphasis on some of these sort of exchanges don't they um, for example the thermic effect of feeding and um, resting energy expenditure uh, and so on and these are the things that you've done quite a lot of work, particularly um, the energy expenditure side of things. Perhaps you could help differentiate what those different components are of um, energy expenditure. Certainly. So the energy intake is, of course, very in easy to define in a way. It's difficult to measure, but we know that that's the sum of the um, energy or calories coming into the system from our ingested macronutrients, whereas energy expenditure then I think is the area where people tend to believe that there's um, a kind of hidden black box and there's a, a part that we don't understand. But actually, we have kind of defined terms that catch different aspects of this. So to start with then, we have resting metabolic rate um, as an indication of our basal metabolism, often referred to as basal metabolic rate, although we, we measure resting metabolic rate. And this is um, really the, the energy 
often expressed as calories or, or joules, required to sustain you under resting conditions. So the kind of examples I give to our, our students on that would be that even if you're laying in the laboratory and we have our expired gas collection and we're saying, please lay very still, um, you're hopefully still using your inspiratory muscles to, to keep your lungs inflating and deflating. There's all kinds of homeostasis going on at a molecular level that's really just keeping you ticking over. So the sum of those processes under resting conditions, and we can apply many more criterion to make sure that's a, a rested value, that the person would be fasted, and so on. That's our resting metabolic rate. Then we can stack on top of that this component called diet-induced thermogenesis. And um, regarding terminology, you see a range of terms used here, whether it's thermic effect of feeding or the specific dynamic action of foods are used and abused in different forms in the literature. But really what people are getting at there is that when you do then eat, you essentially upset homeostasis and that your body is no longer just ticking over under fasting conditions, but there's a whole load of energy required really for the processing of your food. So you're digesting, absorbing, metabolizing, and I often refer our students back. I teach this in the latter years of our degree, but I refer them back to their energy systems at the early part of the degree. And any time that you can see investment steps of a metabolic process that lead up to a payoff, these are all the times when you're having to invest energy to get energy from your food. And these kind of things add up to the fact that you feel a bit hotter. Of course, energy expenditure really is thermogenesis and calories are um, from the word heat and de uh, degrade to heat. So this is really the increase in temperature while you feel warmer if you have a meal. And all of that can add to your resting metabolism. And the kind of level you're looking at in most people is an estimate of maybe 8 to 10% of the energy that you have consumed. That's an estimate, and that really varies depending on the composition of your diet, among many other things. And in general, then, we have certain foods like fats, which have a very low thermogenic effect of feeding, maybe 2 to 3% of the energy that you've ingested, so that is listed on the back of the food packaging. You can expect to then have to um, invest that to derive the rest of the energy. So... Fat in that regard is very efficient, of course. So if you eat 100 calories of fat, you're only going to have to invest a couple of calories to get that into your body and, and use it. Carbohydrate, you're looking more like 8 to 12%. Protein, then higher. And so protein could be more variable because um, that's perhaps another issue that we could explore at some point. But um, whenever anybody asks a question about what is the effect of protein, I find that quite amusing because here we have a term which is so loosely defined and the different forms of protein and different amino acids yeah. can vary structurally more than from a carbohydrate so that we, we must define the, the part, the, the defining feature of that protein that makes it so. But anyway, that we can have different um, pathways through metabolism to get a slightly higher rate of diet-induced thermogenesis. And then, of course, the fourth macronutrient, in my view, is is alcohol. That's the the fourth place that we as humans um, are deriving our calories. And that has a very different thermogenic effect depending on the rate at which you consume it. So if you're, if you're binge drinking, you're going to have a higher thermogenic effect. And if you're drinking it slowly, you have a lower thermogenic effect. But all of that combined, if you've eaten, depending on the composition of your food, um, there's also been some suggestion over the years that different individuals, whether they be lean or obese, will have a slightly different 
thermogenic effect, although I think most of that difference is due to the types of foods that were being consumed. Um, and this will accumulate then to add to your resting metabolism. So now, without even having got out of bed that day, you've increased your metabolism above rest just using diet-induced thermogenesis, which, as I started saying, for a normal mixed diet, that's about 10% of the energy you consume. So if you're ingesting two or 3,000 kilocalories a day, you're going to expend perhaps two or 300 kilocalories through diet-induced thermogenesis. So a small but fairly predictable component of energy expenditure. And then the final component of energy expenditure would be physical activity thermogenesis, which I expect many of your listeners are most familiar with. This is undoubtedly the most variable component of our energy expenditure. Your changes in resting metabolic rate and DIT are fairly fixed. I'll come back to that comment fairly, but um, physical activity thermogenesis can, can vary hugely depending on if you don't get out of bed that day, and if you do, whether you're running a marathon, um, going about your daily activities, we can vary that one quite substantially. And then just to finish, because I often say that these are the three components of energy expenditure, and then I'm reminded by colleagues of adaptive thermogenesis, but I really view this as an adjustment in some of the other components. So adaptive thermogenesis really refers to the ability of our body to adjust some of those other components in a compensatory manner. So some evidence that if you um, are on a weight loss program, of course your resting metabolic rate will fall in a predictable fashion because your, your tissue mass is reduced. You now have less of you, and particularly if you have less in the form of muscle, your resting metabolic rate we would predict would fall, and it does. Um, there's really good evidence in rodents for this effect, and even in humans we do see some adjustments in excess of what you'd expect for resting metabolic rate and also for um, diet-induced thermogenesis. And the way I'd really define this is if we look at um, uh, diet-induced thermogenesis, the two terms I, I combine uh, in relation to diet-induced thermogenesis, I think you could go further wrong than just con considering this as the necessary investment of energy. It's necessary investment because if you've eaten your food and now you actually want to do something with it, having put it in your mouth and swallowed it, you must invest some of this energy to get the payoff of the, the, the large part of the calories that are in there, the other, say, 90% of the calories that you've just earned. Whereas, in contrast, I would describe adaptive thermogenesis as kind of being purposefully inefficient, or efficient as the case may be. So adjusting metabolism very slightly um, in order to regulate your energy balance. So there's some potential for that with diet-induced thermogenesis and resting metabolic rate. Certainly evidence of that in rodents, less so in humans, possibly because we have less brown adipose tissue uh, relative to our body size. And a big part of my research, which uh, I expect we'll, we'll get onto, is how physical activity energy expenditure, as the most malleable component of energy expenditure, also therefore has the greatest capacity for this compensation. So if you are in a uh, energy deficit scenario, the ability to cut back on the calories you expend to balance that and protect against weight loss. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll definitely get into that. Um, and you've already made it quite clear that this is a, an increasingly more complex topic the more we get into it, which is why I wanted to talk about this so much, um, because it is, you know, on one level, it is a case of sort of calories in, calories out. But clearly, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of factors going on here that adjusts quite how we interpret that statement. And one area actually that people rarely talk about when they're discussing energy in and energy out is energy stored because energy storage is is without doubt a factor here because of course when we think about um, obesity we are literally talking about the um, you know the symptom of energy storage um, what, what I mean what what thoughts do you have on on energy storage in this respect so it's an integral part of the energy balance equation but it also is both the cause and an effect of the the compensatory responses the effect as in your net energy balance necessarily will result in a change in energy storage whether that's to draw upon your energy stores or to lay down more energy and storage in the body which in the long term will will ultimately be um, as adipose tissue as fat but less discussed I think is that it's also going to be a cause and if I if I'm studying compensation in energy balance so this is what I refer to as energy balance interactions if you adjust any one component of energy balance on either side so carbohydrate intake or protein intake on the side of energy intake or if you adjust your energy expenditure or diet induced thermogenesis is adjusted on the other side that will have knock-on effects potentially on all other components in a compensatory fashion and so if we're studying that and I had to choose the single personal characteristic most likely to predict inter-individual responses. So if we've got two individuals and they're both going to go on the same exercise program or they're both going to go on the same diet, we're interested in the effectiveness on that for their weight management and health. That's going to be mediated by how they compensate in other components. And if I had to choose one characteristic of these people to dictate or predict how they're going to compensate and the extent to which it would be the, their amount of stored energy at baseline which so we can describe their um, at current energy balance their status as obese is the predictor that symptom <coughs> sorry I've been talking a lot this week <laughs> that's alright <coughs> yeah go ahead you're right there yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just using my voice. I no, think. no, no, no. I get that from time to time. I, I, uh, no, I, I, you see, this is one of the areas that I find particularly fascinating. Um, um, is is this idea that these, you know, there are there are so many things that that can adjust um, for an individual, but there are a lot of things that we focus on, which invariably are misleading if you like um, because those aren't really the areas that we need to be worrying about um, but I wanted I, I really do want to explore some of this some more I mean in the process of getting ready for this podcast I read the um, a bunch of papers that you recommended and I read around the topic a bit more and, and I know a little bit about it already um, but one area that I also wanted to discuss was the relevance of of time periods when we look at what we know about this stuff because of course um, there are studies that are done over the course of just a few hours there are 24-hour studies in you know um, metabolic chambers um, you then got your metabolic ward studies which might still only be for a week or two um, but then you start seeing 
longer term studies that maybe don't have all of these components, but then you start to realize that some of these adjustments as it relates to body composition, which is our main focus here, um, might take years. Um, so the relevance of the time period as it as it relates to, you know, what we've learned from the data and how we should interpret that data. Um, you know, what do you feel about that? Well, time in itself, I find very interesting. And I think in recent years, as I've refined my interests and started to focus on different things, time becomes more and more fascinating. In general, in nutrition across every field, I, I break down any nutritional consideration into three components that I think catch all, and that's the type of thing you're eating, how much of it you're eating, and when you're eating it. And the vast majority of research you see in, in almost any field in nutrition is looking at how much of what you eat, and the time issue, how long you're exposed to, and, and so time encapsulates a whole load of considerations. The one you're alluding to is how long you're exposed to a certain um, treatment, but the frequency with which it's applied, when you started, when you stopped, the time of day that that's applied, the, whether that time of day relates differently to sleep patterns, light and dark exposure, other meals. These are really fascinating areas which really I see as in their infancy in the field. And that general point about the duration of exposure is really critical because sometimes um, absence of an effect and just an effect being absent in terms of it hasn't been measured yet are two different things and that's often confused in the literature. People will point to you and say well there are no studies showing this but if, you, if you're the scientist who would love to do that study you realize some of these interventions we couldn't hope to apply for the sufficient duration which has implications for any generalization anyway. There's many diets that we could say if you did this for a year it would solve all of your health problems but it's just not feasible to do for a year. Mm. Um, and others where we can actually apply the interventions in the long term but we don't have the measurement tools to, to measure a relevant response in that time or that other confounding variables would just be too great if we monitor some, to someone over six months there's just too much else going on that the kind of sample size we'd need would be prohibitive. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, it wasn't until I started actually conducting studies that I really appreciated just how difficult it is to do these things. And I can see the frustration for scientists who are conducting, you know, or, or performing proper science, shall we say, who endure criticisms from people who are, you know, just using other people's science, if you like, as opposed to actually doing it themselves. And it's that appreciation for the difficulty of it. Um, but as I like to say about these things, you know, it is what it is. We just we just need to appreciate, you know, the relevance and, and value of that information and how applicable it is to what we're doing is, is a key consideration. And that is a problem. There's a lot of people discussing and arguing about this stuff without considering you know, where that information came from in the context in which it, you know, it, you know, it, it, what it was meant for. Um, and that's why I'm interested, as you obviously are, in this, this idea of time, because we know if you've, if, you've worked, if, you've read, if you've read any of the research about what really does or doesn't work, proper studies, quality studies, or if you're a practitioner and you've worked with a bunch of people like I have, um, you know, you realize that there are 
there's more than one way to skin a cat, so to speak. There are different ways to do these things. But ultimately, um, the easy bit is getting people to lose weight. The difficult bit is getting them to keep the weight off long term. That's the difficult bit. Um, and there's there's too much focus on, you know, what gets someone to lose weight over the course of a few days or a few weeks. That's nothing compared to what people really need. What they really need is a solution for the long term. And that's perhaps where we really need to be focusing. And it's it's that understanding of the many things that goes on in a person's life. Um the structure of their day, the fact that they have to be up and go to bed at certain times. They may have a, a family to look after, meals to cook. They they might have to travel. Um, they may or may not be able to do three hours of exercise a day. It just might not be possible, but they might have 20 minutes. They may or may not have time for breakfast. All sorts of things we'll get into in a minute. But sort of that idea of to- total type and timing, which I'm very into, is is an important one. But we must never lose sight of the importance of preferences of individuals, um, which gets us into sort of, you know, beyond the biology of all this and into the psychology. And there's there's clearly a relationship there as well. Um, I mean, what, you know, I mean, how do you feel about that? That, you know, it, from a scientist perspective, where you're trying to control variables um, in the lab, whereas in the real world, we don't exist in a controlled variable environment we're in a highly uncontrolled highly complex variable environment um it, you know how relevant then does this information become you feel um i think it's worth considering even if you're a laboratory based scientist that if you're going to make generalizations about rolling out this might be useful in the real world you need to consider how easy that uh, strategy that health gain strategy is for adoption and adherence and adherence is really even more important than adoption because people are often willing to try something but to stick with it is as you say the key to, to long-term health gains no one's interested in losing weight and gaining health for a few weeks it, it's a long-term process that does mean as a physiologist I, I'm handing over in a way to the psychologist to say well what can be adopted and adhered to at the same time, I think we need to recognize that all these scientific papers are part of a body of evidence. So each one makes a contribution. And too often, especially social media is a very critical place, so quite often the messages we see is people slamming studies for what they didn't do and their limitations instead of saying, well, what can we take away? Even, even the most perfectly designed study out there, which wouldn't exist if it was perfectly designed, but a perfectly designed study giving us some information a good critical scientist still wants to see that study repeated and verified. So we need to piece together his laboratory-based study, totally artificial, but it tells us something about the basic biologist, uh, the basic biology, and some basic scientists, that's an end in itself to them. Just it's, it's interesting in science to understand how the body works. If we can then piece that together to say it works on a, a system or whole body level, now we can apply that in the laboratory on a whole body level, can we measure that under free living conditions, which is something we've started to do in our research? And then the follow-on would be, now we would need a clinical trial to see if this is relevant, but does it work in the real world and can it be adopted and adhered to? So we've got a whole range of studies out there and I think more and more what people need to do is take away the, the strengths of a study. Of course, being critical and knowing what the limitations are is important, but 
too often a study is canned completely, we'll pay no attention to it because of this factor, when actually we can get interesting information. One of the, the standards which most frustrates me is when we see people talking about small and large studies, which already are two terms which would need a definition. It's very easy. We have numbers to define small and large. But it's irrelevant, actually. People seem to be inclined to believe a study that has 100,000 people and not to believe a study that has 50 people in it. When it's kind of science 101, you learn straight away in your first year of a bachelor's degree that the number of participants in a study which are adequate varies hugely depending on the nature of a study. So it's quite possible that a study with a million people in it is hopelessly underpowered and could never have told us anything about the variable, whereas a study with 50 might be overpowered and you could start to look at some subpopulations there. It really depends on the study and, and often some of the laboratory-based studies which are ask, answering a very fundamental question, they might need fewer people. We're, we're not going to roll those findings out and apply them to the general population either. So we wouldn't need such a range of people and it would then be the larger clinical trial with less control which is relevant to the real world and as a result that noise requires more participants. Yeah, and, and, and that's why these conversations are valuable because... Um, you know, the listeners are able to um, grasp this concept that there are multiple layers of complexity to all this and multiple contexts. And of course, an appreciation for all of these different factors helps us, you know, use use this information for ourselves and for everyone else more appropriately, which is why I love talking about this stuff. Um, but to, to bring us back to this idea of energy balance. Um, there's one area that I find particularly fascinating, which you alluded to earlier um, as to one of your own interests, which is this idea of compensatory mechanisms. Now, if, if we take an extremely simplistic view of energy in and energy out, um, or we complicate it slightly and talk about fancy terms like fat oxidation that's been measured by um, metabolic testing, you know, on a... Um, um, uh, indirect calorimetry, for example, um, that then becomes an area of of both interest, but also can complicate the issue. So, for example, they might talk about a study where, you know, simply uh, missing breakfast um, or taking a, a certain supplement results in an increase in fat oxidation. Um, ergo equals fat burning. Um, you know, the solution to everyone's problem. But of course. You know, just because you missed a meal or missed a component of a meal or took a supplement and it increased fat oxidation, um, it, it you know, it, it doesn't account for the fact that you may uh, overcompensate later that day. Um, and actually, um, uh, for want of a, a more simpler term, you just go and eat those calories back again. So in terms of the 24-hour period, it makes no difference at all. Um, but you see it all the time, people talking about, well, I'm going to do fasted cardio, or I'm going to take this fat burner, or I'm going to have more protein than I need in that meal to increase, you know, the thermic effect of feeding without consideration of, of any potential compensatory mechanisms. And of course, energy balance shouldn't really, uh, from my understanding, shouldn't be really looked at in terms of a time period like 24 hours. It, it could 
you know, energy balance is likely to be much greater than just 24 hours. That your metabolism doesn't necessarily subscribe to that process. But could could you tell us about this idea of comp- compensatory mechanisms? Because I think this is very interesting. Yeah. Linked to what you were just discussing, I, I think it's it's quite right that energy balance is about calories. So we can look at that, and it's interesting to consider the mechanisms involved in oxidizing certain nutrients, but ultimately it's about calories. So I find it amusing when you see some of the most eminent professors in the world ask, and does that finding about fat oxidation explain obesity? And they'll always just say, well, no, obesity would, would have been about calories in the, in, the, in the first instance. And possibly the best example I give in class on this is if you go to a gym and you you're always asked about your personal goals and if it's if it's weight loss you'll end up on a treadmill pressing the button that says fat burner workout to exercise at a really low intensity mm. and if you take that back to calories and the person asks their gym instructor well um, obesity is about calories in and out correct yes I'm limited on time so if I'm here in the gym for half an hour an hour shouldn't I spend as many calories as possible on this treadmill in the hour that I'm here and that will be directly related to how fast I run. Yeah, so why are we exercising at low intensity? We wanted to burn more calories, which is a kind of mistake anyway, but you just want to spend as many calories as possible because this time issue you mentioned, you'd burn the greatest fat at that moderate intensity. It drops off at higher intensity, but if you deplete yourself of carbohydrates, you've got the rest of the day to, to balance that out. And your obesity state will depend on the rest of your life balancing it out. That's an interesting question, though. As you say, we don't, we don't balance energy in 20 minutes, certainly, or even in 24 hours. And although there's a, an issue with obesity um, nationwide, the, the calorie excess responsible for that is not huge. And he, it's actually then quite fascinating, I find, that so many people actually do... Um, remain in relative energy balance over years and years of life when if you took them on any given day it's very unlikely that they, they certainly wouldn't exactly match their energy intake and expenditure and many people will um, have quite marked differences in terms of a surplus and deficit that seem to balance out over time and that's compensatory mechanisms achieving that which is fascinating really given that so many of the compensatory mechanisms we know about are acute perhaps because they're easiest to measure. So we can see appetite regulatory hormones and so on. Feelings of satiety are going to regulate how much we're eating on a daily basis or even how much we're doing on a daily basis, which would link to my research in terms of if you have breakfast or not. Yet we're not achieving energy balance on a daily basis. We're achieving it day to day or week to week. And honestly, I don't think we really know the the number of days that are, the, the body is attempting to balance energy over if it is. That's complicated by difficulties and even then measuring energy intake over a repeated period. If it takes up to a week to get a valid measurement of energy intake at all, then we can't start to consider where the balance is that um, the body was actually achieving a regulation. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mentioned psychology earlier. Um, one thing I observe quite a lot with with clients is this this thing where they are tracking their calories, um, often with gadgets like MyFitnessPal or some other piece of software. And of course, the minute they see that they're, you know, that they've exceeded 
um, or they haven't achieved whatever their goals were for that day, it then initiates a series of um, actions, um, you know, um, that may induce sort of anxiety or emotional issues that in itself will influence the likelihood that they will or won't exercise or they might over exercise to overcompensate or um you, you know there's sort of an interesting knock-on effect of these things and and um you know i think it, it's that it's that belief that that piece of software is accurate um that is a disservice really to the situation not to mention another area that i'm very interested in and actually we should mention this um is this idea of um um you know one's rmr or bmr how many calories we need a day um of course varies quite a bit from person to person um and it's influenced clearly by someone's weight particularly their lean mass that sort of thing um but when you plug in your height and weight into a piece of software it, it spurts out you know say 1500 calories for females and 2000 calories for males for example and we assume that that's correct we then start using you know calorie counting and various other things and gadgets to you know a degree of precision if you like to try and manipulate that estimate to guide what we do and don't eat um that then has that sort of psychological influence over what we do and don't eat because it's a method of control when you know obviously in certain people that that's a very powerful factor um a most extreme case of course is eating disorders where the the mind becomes um overpowering in terms of of its influence over things like appetite regulation and and so on um perhaps you 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 could make, maybe tell us a bit about how we actually test um, a person's individual um, energy, uh, you know, calorie needs, that sort of thing, um, and uh, delve maybe into variability. Certainly. So I think the, um, the, the wider point links back to what you were saying earlier about experts and certainty. And actually, I don't think that uh, research scientists with all of the evidence base behind them would make very good ETs because there's a point where clients, they don't want uncertainty. As a scientist, uncertainty is your friend. You never want to be certain of anything. We just support things to a certain confidence level. Whereas if you're a PT and you've decided this is the course of action I'm going to recommend, then it, it probably is not going to do for the person's motivation at all. If, if you're saying, well, you know, the research is equivocal here, so let's try it. And these gadgets, are, are in many ways, whether or not they're accurate, that could be a good tool. So let's say um, a, a pedometer or one of the more modern kind of accelerometers. If the data are not really accurate and certainly not sufficient for a scientific study, so we can't put any faith in the absolute value they're given, that doesn't mean that they're not fit for purpose as a motivational tool. If they're sufficiently accurate to tell somebody that they should be doing more, especially if we make sure that they are on the side of caution and, and are telling more people to do more than not, given that most people are too sedentary, maybe that's okay. Um, but if you're asking as a, as a scientist how, how we would then get an accurate breakdown, um, is that what you'd like me to cover, the kind of specific tools we would use if we were trying yeah, to... Yeah, I mean, my, one of my purposes here is to make it clear to everyone concerned that's listening is 
you know one's faith in what these charts and graphs sorry what these software and so on because i i do mention that <coughs> oftentimes scientists publish means um when we look at a, a, a predictive equation the clue is in the title um as to what your daily calorie needs are it is a prediction it is not actual reality uh, necessarily um and um and um it's worth understanding how actually these things are tested okay if you have um, uh, a monitor that's telling you, if we go through component by component, if it's telling you your resting metabolic rate, that's almost certainly an estimate. To, to measure that properly, we'd use indirect calorimetry here in our laboratory, which means collecting expired gases and then determining oxygen consumption, carbon dioxide production. Sometimes, as the study may permit, we'll collect urine samples to try and correct for protein metabolism too. And then we can start to piece together um, exactly how many calories a person is expending under resting conditions. So not only is the measurement complex, but most importantly for the accuracy of that tool is about um, preparation of the participant in terms of being overnight fasted and uh, arriving in the laboratory in a calm and relaxed state. So any tool which is telling you your resting metabolic rate is, is using equations to, to give that, as you say, from height and weight. And that kind of works. It's, it's sufficiently accurate for many people's purposes, really based on the idea that it takes a certain number of calories to keep a kilo of bone alive, a kilo of liver alive, a kilo of muscle alive. So actually, we're all just made of bone, liver, and muscle. And if we took a kilo of mine and someone else's, they'd probably be using the same amount of energy under those resting conditions. And on that basis, therefore, at a population level, similar to BMI working broadly for most people at a population level, if we've got your height and weight, we know roughly how much liver, muscle, fat, bone that is, and it will work. Clearly, uh, an abundance of a particularly active tissue like muscle is a way to change that. So if, if somebody's height and weight is really skewed by the fact that they're hugely muscular, we might then not be correctly giving them their resting metabolic rate. But largely, we would then be able to say that if a person is twice as big and has twice as much of them to sustain under resting conditions, it's a fair estimate that resting metabolic rate is accurate. And if a person is trying to get to their energy balance and needs total energy expenditure, I don't think inaccuracies in measuring resting metabolic rate is really their problem. It's some of the other more variable components. Diet-induced thermogenesis for a person day-to-day the best way to measure that for them would be really to take this assumption of how many calories they've consumed and you would assume that a percentage of your total calorie intake is um, diet-induced thermogenesis. If you have the ability when measuring energy intake to break that down into components, you might be able to refine that. If an individual is on a very high-fat diet, perhaps they've they're restricting carbohydrates for some reason, they might then have some reason to adjust down their diet-induced thermogenesis in recognition of the fact that fat has a very low thermogenic effect of feeding. So that's, that's how you get to diet-induced thermogenesis. The really variable component, again then, is the one where we're going to find the greatest errors. If Depending on how accurate your physical activity monitor is, will impact um, your estimate of how many calories you're expending. We can measure total energy expenditure reasonably accurately using doubly labeled water. 
which is a, a, tracer, a tracer technique, which again will assume that you're oxidizing a certain proportion of each fuel in the body, but that will give us a good indication of total energy expenditure with which we can evaluate some of these other tools that tell us about activity patterns. Common monitors, like you'll see a standard wrist-worn heart rate monitor, these tools will normally, you can click the beeper on the side and it will tell you all kinds of things about your nutritional status and your health and, and so on. Some of the things it's objectively measuring, so a heart rate monitor is so called because it's giving you a fairly good measure of your heart rate. If it wants to tell you your VO2 max, I'd be more dubious about the validity of those data. And equally for physical activity energy expenditure then, you would probably want a better tool. And I know my colleagues here at Bath are doing a, a big study checking the reliability and validity of these things. And there's a lot of monitors now coming onto the market that do do a reasonably good job that people could take away a, a value from those and know this was my physical activity level and more importantly for health concerns the, the pure calorie expenditure that we can get reliably and, and accurately from double label water is maybe less interesting nowadays we'd like to look at physical activity patterns and understand how much high intensity activity is a person doing how much lifestyle activity and although sedentary behaviours are the inverse of that, it's quite possible to be an incredibly active, very physically fit person and still be sedentary, and that still have implications negatively for your health. The, the modern monitors really then are giving us a good indication of energy expenditure, but also giving us a feel about patterns and types of activities that are performed. And I think the future will be coming up with recommendations which are more precise, similar to diet where we don't just say, here's your calorie intake, but we can start to break that down into macro and micronutrients and patterns of feeding. I think the same will happen with energy expenditure. Yeah, I, I mean, I I mean, I love gadgets. I talked about this in the last podcast. I'm, I'm looking forward to that time where we're able to really start to learn all this stuff. I think it will transform what we're able to do as practitioners. And, I'm, you know, particularly when you work with... Um, elite athletes who very much are outliers so they they certainly don't represent the means that this stuff could be really 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 useful um so bringing us back to the point of the podcast then um uh, energy balance and um let's start moving this a bit more towards your specific research um we talked about this idea of total type and timing and i i think that's an important concept um, but also this idea of compensatory mechanisms. Um, and as I discussed with Javier in um, the earlier uh, podcast, uh, episode 71, where we talked about the, the relevance or not or inappropriateness of um, breakfast uh, for athletes. So you must listen to that one, folks. Um, but also the timing of exercise and the, the compensatory mechanisms that that may or may not induce I think are very interesting um, but perhaps you could take us through that concept then you know the the relevance of the activity and the timing of it and and the compensatory mechanisms that 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 may have on on energy balance my interest in um, uh, feeding timing um, actually although everybody talks about breakfast in this uh, in this discussion when I when I'm asked about it really stemmed from being interested in the withdrawal of nutrition and when fasting happened and the link to compensation really comes from the rationale that I think we've covered quite neatly already is that 
the components like resting metabolic rate that can could could be adjusted during the night are really not a large um, variable component of energy expenditure. Whereas some of the other compensatory aspects in humans are the behavioural ones. If we're going to look for a, beha- a component that could really compensate by hundreds of calories on a daily basis and then exert effects on energy balance, weight and health, we must be looking to behavioural components. And that means eating and activity, not just a resting metabolic adaptive response. And on that rationale then, if you were doing something right before bed, you could affect your metabolism overnight, and there's lots of literature looking at overnight studies, and indeed we're doing some of those ourselves. But breakfast clearly then had the greatest potential. If we're intervening with feeding patterns, whether or not you have breakfast and what you have for breakfast, because that's first thing in the morning, you have the whole day for that effect to to carry over or be exerted um, into human behavior. And we started looking at breakfast on that basis and really, um, in fact, whether it's breakfast or exercise, I know some of Javier's studies have really looked at uh, that interaction between breakfast and exercise, but for compensatory behaviors, intervening early in a daily period seems important. And some of the other work we're doing on alternate day fasting, really to for want of a more complex way of expressing it, um, it seems that almost your thermostat, your your energy regulator, does almost seem to reset overnight. So when we intervene on a daily basis, if people have fasted a whole day, they don't really seem to wake up the next morning quite as hungry as they were in the evening. So if you can achieve an energy deficit on a daily basis for someone looking to lose weight, perhaps they've banked that deficit and start over the next day and they don't really exert the kind of compensatory refeeding necessary to, to maintain energy balance. Yeah, I, I mean, that is an interesting strategy, one, of course, which has become very popular and Javier and I did talk about that quite a bit, um, the relevance um, of this because it is a hotly debated area. Um, you know, and, and one should not forget what I mentioned about preference, though, is it, you know, it can, it's not the only way of achieving these things and um, it can be damn difficult for some people, particularly if you need to perform throughout the day if you're an athlete or if you have a job where um, cognitive performance is extremely important. You need to think of the implications of these, these strategies. And, and um, you know, but if we bring this to activity and um, exercise particularly for non-athletes, and this is relevant to athletes, of course, but the timing of when one can be active. Not everyone can train at lunch. Not everyone can train in the morning. Not everyone can train in the evening. They might have family commitments or travel or or whatever. Um, But um, it seems to me from, from what I've been reading, though, there are consequences to the timing of when one trains and the there are compensatory mechanisms um, as a result of that exercise activity that may then influence um, some of those other factors, um, i.e. what happens to the next meal or one's um, appetite regulation, that, that sort of thing. I mean, what, what have you learned about activity itself in that regard? Our research showed a, a clear energy balance interaction, as I say, in that if we prescribe physical exercise... Um, that might not predict the kind of weight loss that a person would hope for or feel they've earned. You know, a person standing on the treadmill, often these treadmills are clocking up calories and we can convert that to grams of fat and they think, great. But that all depends on the compensation. So one study we did here 
we took sedentary middle-aged men and um, I was actually quite pleased that after six months of the training program we'd taken these men who a real novel aspect of the study in fact was we see studies recruiting on a certain basis as whether that's males, females, lean obese. We actually captured using our, our um, activity monitors that these people were defined as sedentary with a, a diet, uh, energy uh, exercise prescription. And by the end of the six months, these previous, previously sedentary middle-aged men were exercising four times a week for an hour at 70% VO2 max. So I'm not a PT, but I'd be quite pleased. And I'd feel that that's, a, that's quite a heavy load for somebody to sustain. It's almost running for as long as they can at the highest intensity they can, four times a week for an hour. And they really didn't lose the kind of weight that you, you probably hope if you got to that level of investment. We were very pleased how dedicated they were to the study. And it was clear that the reason for that was compensatory feeding elsewhere in the diet. This was a free-living study where we were interested in the natural response. And their rate of weight loss was very, very closely tracked by the change in their serum leptin. And this is the hormone that is a satiety hormone, among other things. So feeling less full and therefore eating more food would explain why they're, they're not losing so much weight. So um, just as being on a diet might encourage you to do less, as we've seen in other studies, if we prescribe exercise, it might encourage you to do more. Really the take-home from all of that, I would say, is understanding compensation and recognizing that intervening with any one component will always elicit compensatory responses in other components to to maintain your body fatness really justifies the advice that any weight loss or health gain goal has to be supported by intervening on both sides of the energy balance equation. So it has to be a combination of diet and exercise, independent of the fact that weight and exercise are independently correlated with health. Neither of them will actually have any effect unless you're at least controlling both, but ideally intervening with both. Yeah, and it, I mean, that's an important point you make and one that I know that the PTs out there that are listening will identify with, you know, you're, you know, you're a, you're a lucky PT if you get to train with your client three times a week. I mean, often it can just be once or twice. I, I, I used to have loads of clients that, I, you know, I know that they should try and train with me as often as possible, but um, I only get them once or twice a week. And it doesn't matter how good my workout was. Um, that's just you know, one, two or three hours in an entire week. Um, and there's so many other things that are going on. And of course, you know, I, I may have beasted them in the session, but of course they ate all that back, you know, throughout the rest of the day most likely. And and um, that's why I got interested in nutrition. Um, I realized that, that that was an important area that I didn't know enough about and have spent yeah. a long time getting into this stuff. I think there's so many reasons to focus on both sides of the equation, um, not least because you know, exercise will improve your health even if you don't lose weight. Weight loss can improve your health even if you don't exercise. So we have independent benefits of those two things. You also need to be looking at both for this reason we've been discussing, that one predicts the other. But also when we consider what the problem was to start with, that's a question that comes up a lot is people asking, well, is the cause, is the cause of obesity and the obesity epidemic um, eating too much or doing too little? And the, the kind of facetious answer to that is yes, it is. 
it's it's eating too much, you're doing too little, and that can occur across a range of energy balances. So we we must focus on both sides, and more importantly, even if we use physical activity monitoring um, or lifestyle monitoring in an individual, and can put our finger on for this individual, here is the cause of the problem. So I think the reason there's such a big debate out there with people arguing about whether sedentary behaviours have caused obesity or poor diets have caused obesity, it's not talked about. But the, the real rationale for that discussion is that, well, if we can figure out what caused the problem, that will somehow guide our solution. And that's, that's really flawed reasoning, that the cause of the problem doesn't necessarily mean that's the solution. If we accept that um, people have become less physically active in general with their lives, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to solve this issue on a population or individual level. By putting activity in, we may just have to accept that people are going to use their cars and physical activity has been engineered out of our lives. But it then justifies looking, well, what are the other components that can, can compensate for that? Can exercise fit and take the place of calories that would have just gradually clocked up elsewhere? Or can diet be combined with that? Yeah, now, well, I mean, that's some really important and powerful stuff you just just came up with there. And um, unfortunately, uh, we're at the end of this podcast. Um, but there's a lot of information, I think, that are worth listening to and re-listening to. Um, as always, I will link to the podcast page here some links to the various papers that um, we've been talking about and or I have read um, for this and um, for folks that want to learn um, more about you um, how do they find out I mean I'll put some links on the website but um, uh, ResearchGate, Twitter that sort of thing what, um, are those the ways in which people can follow you and your work? Yeah, I'm ashamed to say I don't really uh, engage with ResearchGate the the way I should, but um, I'm fairly active on on Twitter, and the direct link to me would be just to to Google James Betts and find me on um, the university web pages for links to our projects. Brilliant. Um, well, I'll I'll certainly do that, and of course, if people want to come learn with you and your uh, colleagues, um, what sort of programs are you involved with at Bath? Um, I'm actually the admissions tutor for our sport and exercise science program, so um, I'm well placed to uh, to advise anybody on those. We have uh, undergraduate programs in sport and exercise science. We have bachelor's degrees, which are um, you can either do those with or without a placement. So one of the things we really specialise in here is a, a full year placement as part of the program, which which we completely manage, and uh, the the other. Um, new thing we have in the last couple of years and we've launched a, an MSCI or an integrated masters which means doing a sport and exercise science masters degree all integrated into an undergraduate program so that's a four or five year program depending on if you do a placement and uh, again these are all advertised on the university web pages if anybody's interested in uh, coming to study those. Yeah no, that's excellent and of course um Dr. Javier Gonzalez, who uh, we've been referring to, is also part of your team there, isn't he? And uh, um, I've actually invited other members of your team onto the podcast. So I think we're going to have a full contingent of uh, of Bath University on this podcast very soon. <laughs> um, but listen, uh, I've really appreciated uh, your time and um, sharing your knowledge and expertise um, with us. Um, if folks want to... Um, 
learn more about these podcasts uh, uh, and obviously the one I just referred to, just go to guruperformance.com. You'll find that on either our lab or education side of the website under podcasts. Um, we also have um, a variety of short course programs we offer for our um, continuing professional development program in exercise science and performance nutrition, which is accredited by various bodies. Um, you can find that at guruperformance.com and also the ISSN uh, Diploma, Postgraduate Program in Applied Sport and Exercise Nutrition, which is either taught, blended um, or 100% online. You can learn about that at issndiploma.com or via guruperformance.com. And if you want to come and learn um, and get an MSc in Sport and Exercise Nutrition with me, at Middlesex University, you can also learn about that at guruperformance.com or at Middlesex University's website. But um, uh, thank you, James, once again for your time. Thanks for having me on here. Uh, there's so much more. It's obviously a complicated topic, but I really hope that um, what we've covered has been useful to people. Yeah, well, I mean, as always, you know, there's only so much we can cover in the time we have available, but we'll be sure to get you back on again. And uh, I thought of so many different angles we could have gotten into, so we will. Um, but uh, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and we'll bring a podcast back to you all very soon.